0: Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favourite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish-tech-news.
1: This week on The Futurists.
0: I'm just not sure what... You know if people can fully grasp if you live in you know the us or europe what it's like to have quote unquote five billion neighbors you really have to come and experience it and that's what that's part aesthetically that's part of what this last 10 years has been even as someone who was born in india but grew up outside of india i really made the most of having those five billion neighbors over the last decade so there's a lot of dynamism built in. So we're not predicting that Miami is going to sink. In fact, in many ways, we are not want to say doing the opposite. It really depends on the time scale. If you just take a typical climate risk company, they're going to say, oh, my God, all of South Florida is screwed. That's not how we approach it. We say, well, actually, if they do X amount of infrastructure spending in coastal areas and they do this kind of new real estate, well, then actually Miami does remain uh, livable longer than we think. So we can't rule out Human ingenuity. We, we try to code for that ingenuity and price that ingenuity. Welcome back
1: to the futurists. Uh, I'm in the hot seat with my pal uh, Robert Tursek We're going to be talking to Parag Khanna today. is a, a leading global strategy advisor. Um, he's a global citizen um, and he's a best-selling author. Uh, he's the CEO of a climate focused business called climate alpha closely related to that is his latest book move where people are going for a better future which he published uh, last year and um, preceded by the future is asian commerce conflict and culture in the 21st century uh, parag Khanna welcome to the
0: futurists well thank you both so much it's great to see you again Parag. how are you yeah, how is singapore, singapore? yeah Sunny and uh, you know twenty eight degrees Celsius as always.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and Friday afternoons at four o'clock, you can depend on a thunderstorm. That's exactly when you're waiting right. for a taxi, right? Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um well, we've all spent time in Singapore, but um
0: you're you're based there. How long have you
1: been in Singapore?
0: It's been exactly ten years as of this past wow. summer. Actually, we've done uh, sabbaticals in and out, and you know, long trips and stints. But you know, it's more and more the place where uh, we call home. You know, can't imagine mm. going home right at this point anywhere else. And it's become more and more of you know what we could could probably agree is the sort of capital of the future. I've called it capital of Asia. And uh, now it's sort of capital of Asia and capital of the future, uh, all rolled into one. And we've just witnessed this incredible, you know, evolution and dynamism of this place in just the past decade. And it's been great to be here and have a front row seat to all of that.
1: Singapore is an astounding city, and it's obviously benefiting a lot from Um, you know, Hong Kong's more recent fall from grace, uh, particularly in respect to regional headquarters and so forth. But um, another element of this, which sort of closely relates to your second book, is, um, you know, Singapore is able to make some of these bets because of its proximity to China and the fact that soon China will be the world's leading global economy. How much of that weighs into your decision making in terms of you, you being based in Singapore?
0: Well, there's a couple of things there. One is that you know my approach to Asia is a much broader geographical framework in which Asia is more than just China. And a lot of people, you know, to this day in markets, in you know, in the business world, see Asia as just sort of China writ large. But we would not have moved to China, neither to mainland nor to Hong Kong. We wanted to be in a city that considers itself control that acts in the ways that I kind of call multi alignment, being friends with everyone. Obviously, in Anglophone city, uh, a very safe city, and all of those other kind of virtues that one associates with this place. Proximity to China has been very useful, but I was traveling to China frequently even before moving here. mostly in terms of this city' economic strategy, it hasn't hitched itself only to the China train. Remember that Singapore is one of the so-called tiger economies mm-hmm. that grew much faster, much earlier, developed and modernized much sooner than China to be very very clear in terms of the chronology and this is in you know a matter of factual record as well as lore singapore is the inspiration for china mm, the chinese yeah, miracle anyways. such as we know it is a result of Deng Xiaoping, you know, visiting Singapore and other cities that were Chinese populated or just broadly around the Pacific Rim and seeing Japan and the tiger economies develop and then seeking to initiate those reforms exactly 40 uh, plus years ago. So it's it's an important point because a lot of people say that uh, what can small countries teach big countries? That doesn't happen. I'm like, wait a minute. The yeah. single most important episode of national modernization in any of our lifetimes is exactly a case of the largest country in the entire world learning from one of the exact absolute smallest countries in the entire world. So I'm not sure why people say that. Um, and obviously, the more we look at the future and governance driven by data and data management and and other kinds of practices, the more you can scale those learnings from a place like Singapore.
2: It's a really extraordinary story. I had the occasion to talk to uh, I had an audience with the king of Bahrain a few years back. And um, at the time, uh, we spoke about Singapore, and he has he had tremendous respect for Singapore. He said back in the early 1960s, the two countries had similar GDP and similar population, but since that time, Singapore has simply outstripped every country, not just uh, not just his his kingdom, but every country, in terms of the improvement uh, to GDP and the living standards and so forth. What were the factors that drove you to decide to live there? You had the luxury of choosing to live anywhere in the world, And, and at the time when I met you a few years ago actually three couples that I knew had moved from the United States to Singapore. Tell me some of the factors that went into that decision for you personally.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we were already expats. Uh, we were living in London, uh, sort of on an academic uh, stint. Uh, both my wife and I had done our PhDs at LSE in London, and our second child was born. So we decided that we needed to go, you know, to a place where childcare was more um, sort of you know accessible, affordable, you know, convenient. We certainly were thinking about at the time this being. Early Obama administration, post-financial crisis—you know what's the mood and the vibe, and where do we sense that it's going to be a good place to live? You know, professionally and so forth. And you know, as an, an expat, kind of the first step out of the country is always the hardest. So just relocating to London, but beyond that, we really could have gone anywhere because we were already abroad. And then we kind of looked and said, I had already done work for the Singapore government, I had already been a fellow here back in the mid 2000s when I was researching my first book. I knew the place well um, and, you know, we had very good relationships. So we started kind of just having those conversations and they made it very, you know, attractive for us to come and to be here, to settle here, relocate here. And indeed, as you said, many, many other people, first of all, came way before us, you know, very uh, illustrious, well-known people like Jim Rogers and, um, in general, as a former Jim's British a colony, yeah. uh, you know it has a very large, you know, uh, a Western population. We already knew quite a few others. I even have relatives who had lived here, um, so it became pretty straightforward. Quite frankly, it was almost a fait accompli to come here. But, but indeed, knowing all along, as I did even prior to that, this was kind of you know a place that was doing the right things, and uh, so you know I had a sufficient kind of understanding of what's going on here and how to be able to access the region and kind of have in this radius. I call it the kind of one laptop charge radius, you know, how many places, (laughs) how many people can you see on a flight within a, you know, and and this is a pre kind of new MacBook Air, like 13 hour battery. I'm thinking more like four hour battery, you know, you can reach a good, you know, three, four billion people in that radius. So when I did the the Asia book a couple of years ago, I dedicated it to my 5 billion neighbors. And I'm just not sure what, you know, if people can fully grasp, if you live in, you know, the US or Europe, what it's like to have quote unquote 5 billion neighbors, you really have to come and experience it. And that's what that's part aesthetically, that's part of what this last 10 years has been, even as someone who was born in India, but grew up outside of India. You know, I really made the most of having those 5 billion neighbors over the last decade and and I think that you just have to experience it firsthand. You you grew up
1: in the US, right?
0: Yeah, partially. So first uh grew up in Abu Dhabi in Dubai uh okay. and then in New York and finished high school in Germany. So definitely a global
1: citizen. Um <laughs> you know, when when you are, you know, obviously if if, if uh, you know as, as Rob and I live both here in in the states at least um you know, part-time, um and, and you speak to Americans about China. There's a lot of political connotations to that um, a, as there are more broadly, um, you know, around, around the world. But, uh, you know, how do you explain to Westerners the potential of Asia? Um, I know you've written about it, but um, for those that are, are skeptical, um, you know, that are very pro-Western models, you know, uh, you know wh- how do you explain the advantages or the benefits that Asia is going to mm-hmm. have in the 21st century?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, being sort of explaining Asia isn't necessarily to be anti-Western as a Western product. You know, myself and and so being pro-Western also shouldn't mean being anti-Asian. And one of the uh, obviously key entry points into that conversation is to say that you know if you look at the, the the bottom line, the revenue of most major Western multinational companies, what would that be absent Asia, right? And then China within Asia, of course, it would be a whole lot less. So we do live in a world that's highly interdependent, and the rise, the economic fate and fortunes of much of the West, are tied to uh, the rise of Asia, and there is that symbiosis. So it's not an either-or thing, and that's also the difference between people who view geopolitics as a necess- inherently conflictual process by which one hegemon must. You know, uh, war against its rising challenger, and the winner of that duel becomes the next hegemon. And that's not actually how. The, the kind of grand sweep of history works. It partially explains partial dynamics of the past 150 years. It doesn't explain anything more than that. World history is multipolar. World history is multi-civilizational. Yeah, that's, that's so and we are re-entering a multipolar, multi-civilizational world. And Asia is a multipolar region in that multipolar world, that's with nice. China, India, Japan, other great civilizations that have populated this region defined it for the past you know five, six, seven thousand years. And that's going to be the case now more than ever. And just lastly, part of it is, and this is not about being um, if you will, pugnacious or anything, but just to get people on the right in the right frame of mind, because there can be that kind of um that sort of self-referential. Uh, you know, default view that, you know, the West is still the center, America is still the center. I, I just remind people the facts, you know, most of the human population is Asians in Asia. Most of the world economy is Asian economies. It's not that Asia is sort of, kind of rising and eventually be the center, right? It, it, it's not about the rise of the rest. If you sit in Asia, you are the rest. You, meaning yourselves, and you are the rest, right? Asia is not the rest. And w- language like that in plain American English, you know, is kind of how I try to explain to people what it is like to be here. You may still disagree in terms of narrative perspective, you know, polemics, whatever, but facts are facts. And uh, and, and so that's how I've started to see it by you, being You
2: know, Praga, it's... Um- In the United States, we very often see uh, or hear about China when people are talking about Asia. It's a point you just made a moment ago. Um, You know, in a way, we kind of airbrush out or or, gloss over the fact that there's large countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, India, you know, with enormous populations and enormous economic heft, very important growing countries as well, uh, where China's population isn't really necessarily growing. But in the United States, it's, it seems almost necessary for politicians to speak to in this simplified fashion with a very simple black and white contrast. Uh, and the U.S. always seems to rely on an external enemy in order to create internal cohesion yeah, and maybe distract somewhere. people away from any of the internal issues, of which there are quite a few that could address. And we could talk about many things. I'm sure you've noticed this in your trips back to the mm-hmm. United States, mm-hmm. you know, where a country like Singapore is affordable. It's very safe. Is very little crime. Your, you know, children can walk around the streets safely at night. Um, and what you get for your money is is no probably better than most other places. Uh, public education. education is available. Free Free healthcare healthcare is good. Yep. Right, and uh, in the United States, you know, many of those things are are not available, and they're not certainly not equally available to everybody here. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your perception as a person of the world, not just from Singapore, but as a, as a man of the world. Talk about that perception and maybe some of the blind spots that you notice that the U.S. or or the U.K. or other nations have when they consider the rest of the world. Mm-hmm.
0: So there's a lot going on there. I think you're kind of uh, addressing both the individual perspective and experience of lifestyle, um, as well as the big geopolitical questions about how we perceive Asia and America and China within that or distinct from that. So maybe starting with the personal level. Again, as you said, you know, I could live anywhere in the world, you know, I've traveled just about everywhere. And, and, you know, there must be some reason why we decided to settle here and haven't left here, yeah. especially as a peripatetic person, you Know, who's generally uh, on the move a lot. So there are those virtues, which, again, I think that firsthand experience really matters. When people come here, they don't want to leave, right? No one is forcing them to stay, uh, but they don't want to leave. And there's obviously a lot of reasons. But now this is, again, an exceptional country and it's ex- an exceptionally small country. So much like I don't think that China represents Asia, nor, of course, does Singapore represent Asia. But in one sense, and this also gets at the, the primary question, there is an appreciation for how the ideal form of government is not necessarily the sort of uh, you know Fukuyama model end of history uh, western style capitalist uh, liberal democracy um, without any of the kind of you know bumper guards or guardrails uh, around it and what i've written about more recently is what i call kind of asian democratic technocracy you know i still very strongly believe in democracy i still i believe there should be universal mandatory voting you know like australia has singapore has too i believe that multi-party parliamentary democracy is the highest and most uh, accountable and uh, most legitimate form of government there's zero doubt about any of that that said there needs to be some Institution uh, in the you know or or or, um, sort of uh, entities within the executive branch of government that provide that long term kind of vision and agenda, where you have a kind of again a sort of uh, commitment to certain ideals and goals without changing them every year or two, because what we are doing right now in the US and in, in much of Europe is sort of half building roads, right? Are we going to have health, universal health care? Are we not going to have universal health care? Are we going to commit to infrastructure or not? And these kinds of things. And that doesn't work as someone who thinks long term, you know, how, how can a futurist you know, have a long term vision if it's exactly. you know, going to be uh, interrupted? So there is something to be said for, again, an accountable technocracy, which is not, again, to say that it, it operates at the expense of democracy. A place like Singapore, of course, is not considered to be uh, a fully liberal fully free democracy but what it is because it's inherited those british parliamentary traditions it is actually a multi-party system it does have competitive elections but it does have a very strong technocratic executive branch that sets certain you know guideposts and certain rules and norms some of them are too onerous i'm myself critical uh, of those but i what i see them is in the context of their own evolution and where they are at any point in time and what degree of openness and and liberalism they Willing to stomach, but the key thing is that the end of history is not therefore that they must eventually become like us, and will not. And and on behalf of the five billion people of Asia, you know the kind of uh, yardstick, the metric, the goalpost that most societies have around here. Going as far as precisely Bahrain, as you mentioned, um, is to be like Singapore. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I started observing that again 15, 20 years ago, I was just an early 20 something American backpacker, you know, doing my research. And I heard the Kazakhs and the Saudis and uh, the Indonesians and everyone else saying, you know, Lee Kuan Yew's got it figured out. We want to build our political system to look like that. And I wrote that in the mid 2000s. At this point, it's, I think, pretty much obvious to everyone. And it does not because of our internal decay and our own self delegitimation. Just to be absolutely clear, because there's, we've had already had a number of political cycles where people have said, "Aha! Well, once we get rid of Bush and you know he's replaced by right. John Kerry, which didn't work out in 04, or once Obama wins and you know we will then be the shining city on a hill again in 2008." Again, that's such an unbelievably self-centric, narrow perspective. The rest of the world. Without the investment in infrastructure, (laughs) without changing policy.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: When you travel around Europe, uh, and in particular in South Asia, you encounter quite a few people who are quite skeptical of the American style of government. Uh, The deeply divisive politics, the two-party system, these entrenched two parties that kind of trade the White House periodically. But, you know, the U.S. president doesn't have that much control. We really need a stronger Congress. Our Congress hasn't been very functional in the last two decades. And so there's some uh, deep skepticism about that and this notion of kind of a heavy hand, you know, sort of a guided democracy, if you will, uh, with a lot of uh, industrial policy to back it up. So well, even synchronize even, the economy that has a lot of traction in other parts of yeah. the world. I think
1: Americans would be very surprised to learn that how widespread that perspective is. Even Singapore's success with Temasek. And you know their infrastructure investment and so forth has really become a model that we see. You know, um, certainly um, Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Saudi and others now following. You know, Adia in in uh, you know out of the UAE and so forth. Um, that that you really need if you're going to modernise your economy, if you're going to be the quintessential smart economy and smart and have a smart city like Singapore, you know you have to make significant investment in the people in the infrastructure, infrastructure in the way you think about technology infused into the economy and you know we you, you just don't have that sort of dialogue in in right. the united states frankly it's just not stable yeah. enough to, yeah.
2: to do, do do that so yeah. parag now you've published this book move the, the title of the book is move where people are going for a better future and given the context of what we're talking about we've just been kind of skipping around the globe comparing systems Uh, How much of that factors into into move? Is that what the book is about? Or is the book more focused on climate and and how to live safely uh, with climate change?
0: No, I think that, you know, there's uh, what I do is to kind of look at the last 100,000 years of human history and the relocation of peoples and the reasons why the fundamental buckets are drivers. And it is, of course, uh, political, it's demographic, it's economic, technological, and also environmental. So I try and create a complex picture that weaves all of that together. But in particular, I focus on today's young generation Mm -hmm. because they are the kind of most mobile generation in human history. Um, and therefore, their preferences are driven very much by, you know, seeking political stability and affordable lifestyle, good educational opportunity and a safe environment, all of the above, not just one thing. So climate plays good, a big role. And good internet access. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and cheap and, and cheap and cheap beer.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, though, that's a risky thing to forecast, I would imagine. Uh, in the early 90s, I moved to Hong Kong and I lived there for a couple of years. And at the time, there was this kind of uh, friendly rivalry between Hong Kong and Singapore. And at that time, you could compare the two systems. Uh, and actually Hong Kong came out favorably for many people. And it was because it was viewed as a more uh, dynamic economy. Uh, it was even freer in some respects than Singapore. Uh, it was kind of like the wild, wild east. You could go set up a company in about three hours in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And then the view was also, in. You know, uh, uh, from the time I was there, just in a few years, it was going to be part of China. And that was looked at as a great big opportunity. Now you can imagine someone in your position writing a book saying Hong Kong, therefore, is a really great place to move to. That forecast would not have held up very well over the last five years. Uh, how how are you able to make a forecast like that with confidence? Mm-hmm. What's your methodology for mm-hmm. predicting or recommending where
0: to go to? Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I didn't recommend moving to Hong Kong, and I didn't of take that advice <laughs> myself. I might have, but um, it is actually one of the case studies in the book of complexity because what mm-hmm. uh, where what the, the, this project started out as wanting to forecast the places that will be the winners, and then I realized that that's not how it works. What you're looking for is uh, kind of shifting goalposts and and yardsticks of what qualifies as a livable, stable, desirable place. And people will move among those places. So I came to the conclusion that we will not just move, we will be moving. And I think that is um, really the key thing. So for example, Hong Kong was attractive at a certain point in time. But you could, of course, have identified that there were risk factors on the horizon, like the handover to China and uh, inevitable pressures on their democratic political system, uh, for example. So when people say that, aha, you know, Canada is just uh, going to be a climate paradise, so to speak. Um, well, don't be so sure, because what happens when lots of people go and overrun you know, those parts of Canada, then suddenly it becomes a nightmare. And uh, that that, you they haven't built enough infrastructure. You have, um, you know, cultural uh, tensions and violence. These kinds of things that they're not used to. So, um, you know, what I kind of focus on is the complexity, the process. You know, as the method method is really about complex systems and looking at how these different factors affect each other and whether or not the place itself maintains that balance. Uh, of uh, of sort of ticking the boxes across all, all of those criteria simultaneously. If it fails to do so, it will lose people. Mm,
2: yeah. Who is your Who's your audience for a book like this? Like, who do you expect is gonna be reading it and benefiting from it?
0: I mean, you know, the title would suggest that it's you know people who are in the market to sort of relocate. But of course, it's much more than that. I'm not a tour guide, right? This is fundamentally, it's political science, it's sociology, uh, it's economics, uh, all of those things into one um and of course you know futurism you might say so mm-hmm. i tend to you know i think with each subsequent book focus on an ever broader audience for example this book was adapted to the uh, human geography curriculum of the ap sort of class so there's an ap human geography guide and the ap human geography mm-hmm. course in america is one of the fastest growing ap's you know 200 plus thousand students every single year who take it and so, you know, that was actually by design in the sense that fundamentally, this is a book about human geography, even if it doesn't read that way, even if it reads like a tour of the world and, you know, evaluating places based upon whether or not they stack up and and how they're coping with complexity. But, you know, very fundamentally, I really, in my heart of hearts, I think about geography from in from many different angles and in this book I explicitly wanted to tackle human geography yeah
1: so listen I want to get into the whole in client affecting people movement and so forth after the break. But let's have a quick break, Parag. And after the break, let's get into the potential stress on economies from eco-refugees and how this might play out in cities like Miami and Shanghai and Guangzhou and Calcutta mm-hmm. and so forth who who are potentially going to have some problems. You're listening to The Futurists. Uh, we have our guest uh, Parag Khanna on. Uh, you're with Rob Tersek and myself. We'll be right back after this quick break.
2: is Breaking Banks. Welcome back. You're listening to The Futurist with Brett King and myself, Parag Churston. And today our guest is Parag Khanna, who's been to us from Singapore. Parag's been talking to us about his perspective as a man of the world, a person who's lived in many different parts of the world who voluntarily chose to move to Singapore as the ideal place. We talked a bit about that in the previous section. His recent book, Move, is all about predicting the future of places and the most desirable places where you might want to set up um, your own uh, residence in the future. Now, one of the things that you do, Prague, is you run a consulting firm or forecasting firm, right? That's called Climate Alpha, that helps people make database decisions about real estate. And I'm really interested to hear about that, how that works, particularly in light of the rapid changes that we're experiencing in the climate.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what we've done is to kind of do what's called risk adjusted valuations. So we're looking at property values by location based not only upon the historical trends, population density, income, building, permitting, you know, climate levels, also in our climate model broad climate models of pessimistic, optimistic base case scenarios, and looking at the relative impact of those models on geographies, and then forecasting what human behavior, market behavior is going to be. So we've done it for the entire country, the US, and now we're expanding globally. The ultimate vision is that you can put a pin drop on place on the planet, literally any terrestrial location on Earth, and we would give you some kind of forecasted asset value for property in that location.
2: And is this for a service for individual residences or is it for companies that are trying to set up it, a factory?
0: It can be, we haven't deployed our retail level kind of B2C dashboard that we have it. And that would allow you to kind of Zillow style, plug in your address and we'd be able to tell you what you know, your house will be worth in the year 2025 or 2030, whatever year target you choose. But it's mostly meant as a very large because it's a software platform. So it's meant to take hundreds of thousands of buildings and locations simultaneously and model them individually and against each other. Because again, it's all about complexity and relative performance of location.
1: Ultimately, are we going to face, um, you know, a dramatic rethink of Real estate and commercial property, as a result of climate change, because you know you talked about Canada earlier and displacement of eco refugees and so forth. This is obviously potentially a massive problem. The scale of this could be so large that it could be the greatest humanitarian disaster humanity has faced since the Black Plague. Conceivably, that you know, eco refugees from climate. Although there's still debate on how big that that number is going to be, but ultimately, when you have sea level rise. And all of you know and and livability, uh, survivability issues as a result of um, you know global warming and so forth. What does that do to the 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 viability of just the real estate business?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean that that's a big part of the book. And what we do as a company is looking at how the decimal place has been moving to the right over the centuries in terms of the number of people who migrate in any given century from the 15th century through today, we've gone from millions to tens of millions, hundreds of millions. And now in this century, based perhaps potentially just purely on climate drivers alone, over a billion people could be displaced from their present uh, domicile. And so that's exactly what I'm forecasting this book. Where will the 9 billion people of the year 2040 live? where physically in the world, where will they start? Where will they finish? Why do they go to where they've gone? How do they get there? Which places welcome them? Which places rejected them? And again, this is a book of scenarios, which is what futurism fundamentally has to be about is scenarios. And I paint four scenarios in the book. Three of them are not particularly positive, just to be clear. So, you know, uh, when uh, Brett, you're saying this could be a disaster, yes, it could be. But I also obviously try and, you know, paint that roadmap in the fourth scenario, which I call Northern Lights, about a world population that is more mobile, more better able to circulate to geographies that are stable, but also more sustainable at the same time so that we don't inflict this tragedy of the commons uh, everywhere we go.
2: You know, you know, Prague when I was a young man, uh, I grew up in a world where it seemed like the world was expanding. Uh, the you know the the world of the east uh, Soviet bloc was falling um you know the the borders were coming down there other parts of the world that had been previously closed off were opening up and it seemed like the whole world was opening up but i recently spoke to a climate scientist who pointed out to me that for the first time in history the world is actually shrinking and she meant this quite literally in the sense that climate change is now rendering certain parts of the world uninhabitable and that will continue so you know the percentage of the surface we can live in is going Mm -hmm. to increase arable land by
1: 40 percent at all yeah
2: what do you perceive as some of the biggest like things that we should be genuinely concerned about on a global basis like which regions do you view as kind of like the red hot regions
0: uh, well, red hot can be can now mean multiple right. things. So I'm <laughs> going to assume you mean the unlivable places. I call them vacant states in the book. You know, the word state has a very literal meaning. It must have recognized borders and a permanent settled population. And there will be there will be geographies, countries that will be completely abandoned and therefore no longer even definition of what a state is under international law. So I, I'm looking at exactly those questions. And there will be again, it's not about entire countries that you know where this phenomenon. Phenomenon, maps neatly onto our, you know, more or less arbitrary post-colonial borders, but rather, you know, based upon topography and climate uh, modeling. So there will be parts of countries where people can no longer live in the same way that no one lives in, uh, you know, much of the Sahara Desert or the empty quarter of, uh, you know, the sort of uh, Persian Gulf. But there are, remember, at the same time that the world is shrinking, it's also shrinking demographically. Right? We're reaching what I call peak humanity, and that's one of the points of departure of the book. We're only eight billion people as of this year, and the world population is not, in my view, going to cross ten billion. So most of the people who will ever live are alive today, and we don't have a a, a spatial problem, right? We have right. one hundred fifty million square kilometers of land area in the world, and even if arable land is shrinking, the fact is that those eight billion people can fit, you know, in Manhattan Island. You know, we can fit on the planet, and so I address the distributional question. Of what are the geographies? If even if people had to leave all the vacant, unlivable, you know, decimated uh, geographies in the world, we still have plenty of space on the planet, right? But where should people be redistributed, and how would we get to that point? Is the question I'm answering, and there's the answer to that is there's plenty of space, right? We have more than enough space. But of course, this is becomes a moral question, an ethical question, a political question, a diplomatic question, and right. a, and a, and a commercial question. How
1: soon? How soon should cities like Miami? I mean, I would say now because Miami is identified as um, the city in the United States that's going to have um, the most economic impact from climate change. It's flooding. Um, yeah, it's flooding. Um, you know. Uh, and and of course, the the very famously the governor, the previous governor of uh, um, of Florida. Florida, was was did not allow the mention of climate change, um, which I think is you know you know head in the sand ostrich type stuff. But um, you know, what would you say to people living in Miami? What would you say to um, you know the 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 planners there in respect to what their strategy should be? Out, out on real estate and you know the problems that miami is going to face over the next 30
0: years well th- this is where you know again uh adaptation comes in and not making Firm predictions about a place because there's a lot of adaptation that can be undertaken, and we try to model that into our our algorithm. So if a place increases its adaptation spending, which is to say it builds seawalls and it does flood controls and it you know relocates people to higher ground and does all of these other things that a city, a coastal city can do, well then it's going to retain its livability, its characteristics for much further into the future than we think based upon today's linear projections of what. Is, is store for that place. So there's a lot of dynamism built in. So we're not predicting that Miami is gonna sink. In fact, in many ways we are no i don't want to say doing the opposite it really depends on the time scale if you just take a typical climate risk company they're going to say oh my god all of south florida is screwed you know run 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 uh, for the hills um that's not how we approach it we say well actually if they do x amount of infrastructure spending in coastal areas and they do this kind of new real estate and so on and so forth will actually you know and they keep taxes low of course and they attract young people well then actually miami does remain uh, livable longer than we think so we can't rule out human ingenuity, uh, it's we, we try to code for that ingenuity and price that ingenuity.
1: But we, I mean, obviously, humans can adapt. Um, but right now, um, you know, wh- there's there's been long-term denial. Now, obviously, it's going mm. to get to a crunch point. And I think, you know, what we see with uh, natural weather events and so forth occurring, the wildfires and so forth, and the, the continuous flooding, um, it, it's clear that um, we will have to adapt. But uh, the question of who's going to pay for it always comes up in, right. in this conversation. So, yep. this, But this has to sort of materially change economics as well. Is that one of the reasons you're a bit more bullish on Asia economically in the 21st?
0: Well yes and no I mean Asia by definition is not only has the most people but the most people exposed to climate change right to flood uh to um to uh heat waves to uh, rising Bangladesh, sea levels Maldives, droughts and yeah. so forth right so you know Asia's 5 billion people are hardly in the clear and you don't really have an Asian climate policy an Asian adaptation uh, strategy one of the weaknesses of the entire COP ipCC process has been that most of the funding uh, was in mitigated which of course important I'm a strong advocate of climate change mitigation I even support geoengineering but adaptation is the here and now right it's what are you doing today to help those vulnerable people so in Asia you have you know Indonesia saying that the capital city literally has to move from yeah. Jakarta to another island you know that's an example of a very high cost uh, long time horizon kind of adaptation, but it's not a good thing to be in that situation. When I look at the United States, you know, and you asked the question about who's going to pay for it. I look at Louisiana and I say, look, the population of Louisiana is declining. A lot of federal funding is going into rehabilitating power lines that cannot withstand the next season's uh, storms because they're built for category three and they're getting to actually category four or five. And uh, again, the people are moving away anyway. So we're literally, as taxpayers, throwing good money after bad, and we should not be doing that. So with the Biden infrastructure plan, and build back better and all of these kinds of things, we should actually be focusing on reinforcing climate resilient areas, investing more capital there, and ensuring that there's adequate housing and quality infrastructure that's done in a sustainable fashion for the future populations that are inevitably going to settle in those resilient, stable areas. Of course, plenty of people can stay in places that are going to be you know, wiped out, but they shouldn't be doing so at taxpayer expense.
2: Interesting. I would imagine that there's uh, long-term planners at uh, large corporations are probably very concerned with the topics that you're focused on. I would imagine, for instance, that energy companies are going to pay attention, big manufacturing companies, uh, the semiconductor companies, for instance. Uh, these are companies mm-hmm. that make long-term bets because they're going to build yeah. infrastructure that is not something that you can rip up and move easily mm-hmm. or at all. Frankly, um, I would imagine that there's a tremendous amount of interest. Who are the people that are reading this book, and and what is what has the reaction been to move?
1: or engage in climate alpha. Yeah.
0: Right. So with, with Climate Alpha, it's very much, you know, it's it's property developers, it's real estate, private equity, it's pension funds, it's insurers. So they're, they're basically very, very large investors, and managers, as well as real estate, family offices, everyone who's concerned about their own uh, infrastructure, real estate portfolio, land holdings, property, and so forth. So it's kind of what you would expect. Um, in terms of long-term thinking, sure, but for different reasons. I mean, energy companies are concerned about the price of oil and gas and what are the regulatory dynamics. That are going to enable or prohibit, you know, their, their, their drilling activities and production activities and so forth, um, slightly less so, you know, about their own contributions to a rapid energy transition. Whereas infrastructure, manufacturing, and so forth, they are, and real estate are very concerned about that this long-term question of the human geographic footprint. They want to know where the markets are going to be right? Where will people be? Where will the customers be? And so by focusing on human geography, I'm giving sort of, you know, tentative answers to what are the locations that are what I call the new civilizational centers. When we talk about cities, people have said, oh, COVID is the death of the city. Well, no, it's not. You know, just because New York lost people, it doesn't mean that Denver didn't gain people. Last time I checked, Denver is a city. And there's a perpetual competition among the cities. It's not entirely zero sum the way sometimes it's, it's made out to be. But the fact is that there will be thriving cities in the, you know, deep into the 21st century. They just may not be the same as the 20th century. Well, let's build
2: on that. Give us a forecast, if you will, because we like to ask our guests to close the show by giving us uh, a fanciful forecast or a serious forecast, but something that's a little further up. Yeah, take us into the year of 2050.
1: Tell us what the world's going to be like.
0: I think it'll be much more nomadic. I think that people will have resettled, but be seasonally, seasonally, uh, or seasonally migrant and migrate. Uh, th- those who can afford. And I think that there are obviously places of a nor- nor- more northern latitude, around Canada, Europe, uh, Russia, Japan that will have larger populations than they do today. To use a kind of sci-fi term, I use uh, one chapter of the book is called terraforming Siberia. And when we use the word terraforming, we usually mean colonizing outer, you know, other planets, but actually there's large uninhabited swaths of our planet that we had come to come in and reside in. So I say we're going to terraform Siberia. Now, Siberia, as you probably know, is actually not a livable place, even as it is a, a quote-unquote relative winner from climate change. You have peat bogs, you have obviously um, uh, the, uh, you, the the tiger, you also have the, um, the permafrost thawing, and you have methane gas being released, poisonous gases. You have the wildfires last year. Fun fact, not so fun fact. Last year's forest fires in just Russia alone equaled the total land area of all the other forest fires on all the entire rest of the planet wow. Earth combined. And of course, there isn't you know, your fire department, your local Smokey Joe, whomever is not there in uh, you know, the far east of Russia to put out all those fires. There's a long way to go. And that's why what I talk through in the book is, well, what is that future infrastructure in places that have agriculture that can be settled for certain seasons of the year certain time periods what's going to what kind of people are going to wind up there it's going to be you know south asian farmers just to give you one other prediction that relates to this terraforming again because south asia is among has among the worst worst climate profiles you can imagine of the large South Asian diaspora, it already is, but far exceeding that of China, uh, make it sort of print around the world as people flee many unlivable parts. And so I'm looking already at skills transfer agreements that Russia has with Indian farmers, that Romania has with Pakistani laborers, and I'm looking at how this South Asian diaspora is spreading. And that is how we, uh, in terms of, again, human migrations and literally our own future genetic footprint is going to be altered by the next wave of genetic mingling among races that will occur right. as a result of the mass migrations that are being unleashed today because of climate, geopolitics, and other forces. And that's actually where the book ends. Which,
1: which in itself really makes this concept of a nationality something that's very amorphic, you know, in the future. Right. Um, to, to, to finish us off, um, let's get a bit even more sci-fi if we can. Um, You know, take us out over the next 30 to 50 years and beyond, what is it that really excites you about the future? What is it that, um, you know, know, because all of us as futurists, we tend to be in a rush to get to the future. We tend to be optimistic about the future. What is it that you're most optimistic about? obviously we've got a lot of challenges coming up over the next 20 to 30 years. But as we come through the other side of that, What do you think Mm -hmm. human society would be like?
0: Uh, This is, you know, both an analytical answer and a normative one, a project that I've been pursuing and and advocating for a long time. And I think it's time has come, which is to basically denationalize passports, to denationalize mobility. The very idea of the passport, of course, is that your identity is tied to your, uh, you know, the country in which you were born that issued you that identity. But now that we have so much data about ourselves that we can put online, blockchain, what are our skills, our criminal history, our travelers, our financial records, we can make a case for ourselves to be treated as individuals, not as citizens of X, and therefore, Cre should let me in based on who I am, not where I came from. And we have all the technology, all of the capacity, even, even some of, some some degree, the diplomatic will uh, to get to that system. And I think we're going to get there actually sooner uh, than we think, despite the rigidity of the heavily bureaucratized system of migration that we have imposed over the past century. In well, because immigration is going to have to out be of
1: competitive, right,
2: in the future? Exactly. Exactly. Right. A race for talent. Well, a Parag, war Khanna, for young
0: talent.
2: Parag Khanna, thank you so very much for joining us on the Futurists all the way from Singapore. So good to see you again. And what a great set of uh, information you shared with us today. Multiple perspectives uh, from the other side of the planet. Always a great pleasure. Thank you for
0: joining us.
1: Brett, you want to round us like, up? Here? Sure. Absolutely. So Parag, where can people find out more information about yourself and the books?
0: Uh, Paraghana.com has everything about me in the book. So, climatealpha.ai is the company.
1: And are you working on a
0: new book? I am. Uh, you'd, you'd like it. It's called Citizens of Everywhere. So, yeah, you've awesome. you called me very kindly a global citizen uh, yeah. many times in this conversation. I, I refer to myself as a citizen of everywhere, and I explain why, awesome. what, what that means as a concept, and why I think it is something of a kind of principle that young people can can latch onto.
1: Well, when you're ready to launch the book, let's get you back on.
0: I appreciate that. I'd love to.
1: In the meantime, if you like the show, um, you know, don't forget to tweet us out. Give us a five-star review on iTunes, Podcast or Google Play, you know, Amazon, wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. And, uh, you know, share the show. Um, Tweet it out. Put it out on social media, wherever, um, you know, you can give us a little bit of a hand. It is definitely appreciated. If if there's certain futurists or guests you'd like to have appear on The Futurist, please let us know also. Um, But for now, um, you know, my thanks go out to the production team Team, to, um, to Sylvie Johnson, Carla Navarro on the social media side, to Kevin Hersham, our audio engineer, Lizbeth Severins, and, and the rest of the team at Provoke Media help us put this together every week. Um, but uh, we will be back with another Sterling Futurist guest next week. And until then, we'll see you in The future. future.
2: Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.
0: Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish underscore Tech News. On Facebook, Facebook facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, LinkedIn linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, Instagram instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, TikTok tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.